He is a menace to society. He is the biggest problem with policing and the biggest problem with society. Why are some police officers in St. Louis refusing to testify in cases they investigated? Today is Thursday, November 23rd, and this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. This hour, an investigation into how some cops are protesting liberal prosecutors by refusing to show up as witnesses in court. Also, the latest on the hostage deal between Israel and Hamas. Dutch elections deliver a surprise. And the great Thanksgiving pie debate, sweet potato or pumpkin? Uh, number week, I would say that we go through at least 15 to 20 sweet potato pies. During the holiday, I would say 40 to 50. Plus a different way to prepare a turkey from Taiwan. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. The Persian Gulf nation of Qatar is involved in complex negotiations between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. NPR's Aya Batrawi has the latest on where negotiations stand. Qatar's foreign ministry says a humanitarian pause in the fighting will begin Friday morning in Gaza and that the first group of Israeli hostages will be released from Gaza several hours later that same day. Qatar says a list of the hostages who will be released was handed over to Israel's intelligence services. Meanwhile, Hamas says the deal that was agreed upon pauses fighting for four days and that Israel will release three Palestinian prisoners in exchange for each hostage that's freed from Gaza. Hamas also says the deal allows for 200 humanitarian aid trucks to enter Gaza each day and that this aid can be distributed to all areas of Gaza, including the north, which has been cut off from receiving aid for around two weeks now. Ayo Batrawi, NPR News. The United Nations World Food Program says roughly 2.2 million people in Gaza need food assistance. That's nearly the entire population of Gaza. WFP describes the conditions as desperate and catastrophic. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is denying an allegation that he sexually assaulted a woman in 1993. As Elizabeth Kim from member station WNYC reports, the accusation is contained in a civil lawsuit. The lawsuit was filed by a woman whom NPR is not naming because NPR does not name alleged victims of sexual assault. The woman accuses Adams of sexually assaulting her when they both worked for the city of New York. Adams was a transit police officer at the time. The accuser is seeking at least $5 million. Speaking to reporters, the mayor denied the allegations. It absolutely did not happen. Uh, I, I don't recall ever meeting this person. The lawsuit was filed under New York's Adult Survivors Act. It allowed accusers a one-year window to sue their alleged abusers in civil court and seek monetary damages regardless of when the abuse occurred. That look-back window is set to expire Friday. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Kim in New York. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced today that the Justice Department is seeking the swift extradition of a notorious assassin for a Mexican drug cartel. Nestor Isidro Perez Salas, also known as El Nini, was arrested in Mexico yesterday. U.S. courts have indicted him on a number of charges, including drug trafficking and weapons violations. It's a snowy Thanksgiving day across the northern Rockies and parts of the central plains. Winter storm warnings and advisories are in place throughout most of Idaho and Wyoming into Colorado, Utah, and also through Nebraska. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
One consumer group is offering safety tips for those who plan to fry their turkey on this Thanksgiving holiday. NPR's Bill Chappell reports. When you lower a frozen turkey into a pot of hot oil, it can trigger an explosion and ignite a dangerous fire. That's the heart of a Thanksgiving warning from the Consumer Product Safety Commission. The CPSC put out a video showing what those explosions can do to a house. It's urging people not to try to fry their turkey on a porch, in a garage, or next to their home. Thanksgiving is a celebration, but more than three times the normal daily number of cooking-related fires break out on Thanksgiving Day, the consumer agency says. And while frying a turkey has its own risks, the number one cause of home fires is food that's left unattended while it's cooking. Bill Chappell, NPR News. AAA projects more than 55 million people are traveling this Thanksgiving holiday period. It's the group's third highest Thanksgiving forecast since it started keeping track. Most of those leaving home to celebrate the holiday are driving. Others are flying, the TSA projects. It'll screen more than 30 million people at airports over the holiday, with the busiest day coming up on Sunday. Today, flight tracker Flight Aware counts about 800 delays in the U.S. so far and more than 400 flight cancellations. Hospitalizations from COVID-19 are rising up nearly 9% in recent weeks. Households in the U.S. can order four free COVID tests from the government on covidtests.gov. I'm Kristen Wright, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. If you're on your way to holiday gatherings, you should have clear roads this afternoon. Traffic has largely cleared across the greater Boston area. No major issues or slowdowns reported along 93, 95, and 495. Well, we had a beautiful sunny day out there today for Thanksgiving. We can expect clear skies for tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, chillier, breezy again. Temperatures in the upper 40s for tomorrow. Right now, we have 50 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. We're going to start this hour with news of murder trials that have been taking place without an important witness. This is happening in St. Louis, and it tells us something about the nationwide debate over how to deal with crime and the resistance to progressive prosecutors. NPR investigative correspondent Sasha Pfeiffer is here to bring us the story. Hey, Sasha. Hi, Ari. You've been working on the story with ProPublica. What have you found? So right off the bat, Ari, I want to play you two pieces of tape. These are a pair of voicemails, pleading voicemails, and this is the first one. Hey, Detective Murphy, I wanted to reach out to you one more time. I do think we need you on this case. There is no problem with calling you as a witness, so uh, please give me a call. What's happening here, Sasha? What are we hearing? That is a prosecutor begging a police officer to testify at a homicide trial, but the officer did not respond, so the prosecutor called again. Hey, Detective Murphy, I understand you have issues, but this is a murder case, and we kind of need you. If it makes any difference, this guy's a really bad guy. So can you put your differences aside and focus on getting this guy? That would be helpful. Thank you. And did Detective Murphy respond to that second voicemail? 
No, he did not. Uh, this is a detective named Roger Murphy. He never did testify. That's even though he was the lead detective, and even though he believes the man on trial did beat a person to death, and even though he believes his absence hurt the case. So this detective investigated a murder. He thinks the defendant was guilty, and he thinks if he had testified, that could have helped secure a conviction. Why wouldn't he take the stand? So I want to note, by the way, that that jury in that case came back with a not guilty verdict. Mm. I also want to note that Detective Murphy is not the only St. Louis police officer who has refused to cooperate, but he is one of the most extreme. So far, he has refused to testify in at least nine murder cases in which he was the lead detective and in another one coming up soon. For what reason? So some context. As we've said, this is taking place in St. Louis. That city, of course, became an epicenter of the Black Lives Matter movement and of calls for police accountability after the 2014 shooting of Michael Brown. For anyone who doesn't remember, Michael Brown was killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson. His death in the protests that followed created a huge push for criminal justice reform. Yes, and as part of that push for reform, St. Louis elected a new top prosecutor in 2016, and she created what's called an exclusion list of problematic cops. What is an exclusion list? It's a list where police officers who are believed to have credibility problems get put on it, and it, and it excludes them from getting search warrants or bringing cases forward. And Detective Murphy feels so wronged about being put on that list that he's basically willing to sabotage his own cases. So I went to St. Louis to talk with him. Hmm. Well, take us there. What did you find? Well, I met Murphy at his home on the city's south side. He lives in a small house with his wife and his pickup truck and two pit bulls. That's Lucy, the brown one. And that's Ethel. I got her from a crime scene, uh, murder-suicide. We got her back to health, and now she's... She's 50 pounds of craziness. <laughs> it's not that Murphy doesn't have time to testify. He's now retired, so he has nothing but time. I get up, I go and hit the coffee pot, put the dogs out, I go out in the garage, I smoke a cigarette, I go fishing, eat dinner, uh, get with our neighbors. Murphy appears to have a clean record, but he landed on a list of problematic St. Louis cops because of some Facebook posts. In one, he called a black man who'd been killed by a white police officer a violent thug. He also referred to the top prosecutor in St. Louis at the time, a black woman named Kim Gardner, as Kimmy G. A judge later said Murphy's Facebook posts were unprofessional but not racist. And Murphy says he was just exercising his right to free expression. There's nothing biased. It shows that I'm a conservative and it shows I'm, you know, pro-police. I mean, I could see if I committed a crime, but this was because I was speaking out against the political system here in the city of St. Louis. Murphy strongly opposes Kim Gardner's policies. She's a progressive Democrat. She wants to reduce mass incarceration, eliminate cash bail, promote rehabilitation over punishment, and not prosecute some nonviolent crimes like shoplifting. Murphy calls that a soft-on-crime approach that's making cities less safe. And although Gardner's office put him on its exclusion list, it still asked him to testify at some trials. Murphy says it's hypocrisy to question his integrity, yet want him to testify. And he says even if he did testify, defense attorneys might grill him about why he's on the list. I'm going to get on the stand and they're going to crucify me. It would have been all about me and not about the case. Being on Gardner's list meant Murphy wasn't allowed to do much work on cases, so he ended up doing a whole lot of nothing. I'd come in at 6 o'clock in the evening and I'd watch Amazon Prime or I'd watch Netflix or I'd watch Hulu or whatever. 
you're paying me at that time $61,000 a year plus benefits to sit there and watch TV. So Murphy retired about two years ago out of boredom and frustration, but some of his cases are still ongoing. The police department didn't order Murphy to testify and didn't discipline him for not testifying. There's now a new top prosecutor in St. Louis who says he doesn't have an exclusion list, and his office has also asked Murphy to testify. But Murphy still won't do it, and he said his lawyer advised him not to testify either. Was it the right thing to do? In my mind, yes. In other people's mind, probably in your mind, it wasn't the right thing to do. Prosecutors were able to get some convictions without Murphy on the stand. But in other cases, they offered plea deals or dropped charges entirely. Had Murphy testified, the outcomes may have been different. But that one defiant guy in Tiananmen Square standing in front of a Chinese tank, and I'm not saying I'm that guy, you know, but somebody has to stand up and go, this system needs an overhaul. He is a menace to society. Adolphus Pruitt is president of the St. Louis NAACP. He has a sworn duty to protect and serve. And if he doesn't do such, because he was on his list of some other bull crap, he is the biggest problem with policing and the biggest problem with society. Murphy says he's fed up with what he calls hatred towards police and disgusted by liberal prosecutors. He also says he's taking a principled stance and speaking for other disillusioned police officers who are afraid to speak up. But Pruitt buys none of that. It is retribution. If they had to drop cases or they had to plead for weaker sentences, it worked. He extracted the retribution he wanted to extract on the office. And that's all that was. That office is the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. It was led by Kim Gardner for nearly seven years. She was elected and re-elected by a wide margin both times. Her progressive message resonated after the trauma St. Louis went through following Michael Brown's death. Here's Gardner after winning her primary three years ago. The people spoke and they said enough is enough. People saw the murder of Mr. George Floyd. People see the murders of many others at the hands of law enforcement that should be But Gardner clashed with police. They say she failed to prosecute legitimate cases, and her office struggled with massive dysfunction. About a third of her attorneys quit. The ones left behind had crushing caseloads. Some didn't show up in court for trials. Eventually, Missouri's attorney general sued to try to remove her from office, and a judge said this. The circuit attorney's office appears to be a rudderless ship of chaos. Back in 2020, Gardner had filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city and police union, alleging a racist conspiracy to push her out of office. She did not respond to multiple requests for comment, but here she is at a Baptist church in St. Louis in May. You can't run an office that you have people inside and out purposely tearing this office down. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not leaving. I'm not resigning. I'm not doing nothing. You're going to have to remove me. About two weeks later, Gardner did resign, but the legacy of her exclusion list still lingers. I don't think exclusion lists are a good idea to begin with. That's Boston College law professor Michael Cassidy. He says these lists alienate police officers, so prosecutors shouldn't be surprised when cops on them refuse to cooperate. Saying that I'm going to put you on an exclusion list is basically the death penalty to your career. But Cassidy also says Murphy has an obligation to testify. Murphy could be subpoenaed, 
but he says if that happens, he'd refuse to answer questions on the stand. And Cassidy says that means murders may go unsolved. So he doesn't get a lot of sympathy for me, but neither does the extreme position of creating exclusion lists without giving the people on that list any opportunity to talk to you before the list is created. So neither party here gets a lot of sympathy from me. Murphy is still railing against Kim Gardner months after she resigned from office, and he does not intend to testify in another St. Louis murder trial scheduled to start soon. Did it hurt cases? It definitely hurt cases. And I apologize to the family and all the other families out there that didn't get to seek justice. But I don't believe in the progressive system at all, at all. The public has seen me as the enemy and has seen our profession as the enemy. But we didn't break the system. We kept arresting people and she kept letting them out, refusing cases, refusing good cases. Murphy did agree to testify in one case. That's because Gardner's office wasn't involved and one of the victims was related to a police officer. And, and yeah, the bias in that point is it's a policeman's family and we're all, you know, supportive of each other. Murphy says it does bother him that one homicide case he refused to testify in resulted in an acquittal. Murphy thinks if he had testified, the man accused would be behind bars. I still feel bad that he's walking the streets because he's going to do it to somebody else. Murderers don't just murder one time. Progressive prosecutors say that attitude shows how much external and internal opposition they're up against. Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News. We'll hear more about that on Morning Edition tomorrow. And go to npr.org for a link to the digital version of this story by ProPublica, which NPR collaborated with for this project. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's 418. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR, a woman who gives birth in jail or prison typically is separated from her baby within hours or days. Minnesota now lets some moms stay out of prison and at home with their new babies. More on how the program works on the radio and the WBUR app. Stay with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, DirectTire.com. It was a quiet day on Wall Street today. No trading because of the Thanksgiving holiday. And for many, tomorrow marks the unofficial start to the holiday shopping season. Massachusetts retailers are predicting just a 1% bump in sales this year, driven in part by inflation and interest rate hikes. If you're heading out to do some holiday shopping tomorrow, expect sunny skies. We'll have a full forecast coming up. WBUR supporters include Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com. 
and Landry and Arcari Rugs and Carpeting with a Black Friday event now through the 27th for all handwoven rugs. Only online at LandryandArcari.com. Whether you're traveling to see family or cooking up a feast today, head to WBUR.org slash podcast picks for good listening this holiday. That's WBUR.org slash podcast picks. Clear skies tonight, temperatures around 35 degrees. Tomorrow, chillier, breezy, mid to upper 40s under sunny skies. Saturday, plenty of sunshine, upper 30s. Right now, we have 50 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Tomorrow could bring two important developments that we haven't seen since war erupted between Israel and Hamas almost seven weeks ago. First, a temporary ceasefire is supposed to take hold in the morning. And second, Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners are supposed to be exchanged later in the day. NPR's Greg Myrie is reporting this story from Tel Aviv. Hey, Greg. Hi, Ari. How exactly is this expected to play out on Friday? So this four-day ceasefire is set to begin Friday at 7 a.m. local time. Uh, This was announced today by Qatar, the Gulf nation that brokered the deal. And then at 4 p.m., about nine hours later, Hamas is supposed to hand over 13 Israeli women and children seized when the militants attacked Israel back on October 7th. Now, the names haven't been announced yet. But the militant group is holding, we know, a baby that's less than a year old. It's also holding a three-year-old Israeli-American whose parents were both killed by Hamas. In turn, Israel is to free about 40 Palestinian women and teenagers from Israeli prisons. Similar exchanges are then supposed to follow for three additional days or through Monday. And, And if this works out as intended, could the ceasefire be extended beyond Monday? Uh, yes, Ari, it can. Um, if if this first four days of the ceasefire goes smoothly, it can keep getting extended by an additional day at a time for up to 10 days. Hamas would continue to re- release about a dozen or so women and children each day, and Israel would free another 40 women and teenagers uh, daily from those currently in prison. But this ceasefire will only last a maximum of 10 days. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel's Israel's goal is still to destroy Hamas. Israel is not interested in a long-term ceasefire. Palestinian civilians in Gaza are facing terrible conditions. Can you tell us about the humanitarian aid component of this agreement? So they should get some relief. Israel has been bombing Gaza virtually nonstop since the Hamas attack. We're talking thousands and thousands of airstrikes, including more just this evening. Uh, The bombing is still going on. So this would be the first respite for the more than 2 million Palestinian civilians in Gaza. Also, the deal calls for additional aid to come into the territory, food, water, medicine, fuel, and this is supposed to go up to at least 200 trucks a day. That's far more than we've been seeing in the 
past seven weeks. So this will certainly be welcome, but a large part, portion of Gaza's population has been displaced, going from the northern part of the territory to the south because Israel told them to leave. Conditions are extremely rough in the south, and while the most urgent needs may be addressed here, this is by no means a permanent solution. These negotiations have been so fraught. How great is the risk that the ceasefire doesn't last for 10 days or, or even for the four? Yeah, that's, that's certainly possible. The conditions are very tense, very volatile. Any number of things could go wrong at any moment. The Israeli military reported ongoing fighting today in a half dozen places in northern Gaza, where Israel now controls much of that territory. Um, Israeli troops and Hamas militants will remain in place during the ceasefire, so they'll still be in close proximity. A single incident could easily spiral out of control. And in the coming days, even if they go well, won't, won't resolve the hostage crisis. Hamas and other Palestinian militants will still be holding more than half of the 240 hostages they currently have. Uh, so Hamas knows this still gives it some leverage, and it's likely to make even greater demands for freeing the men and the soldiers they'll still be holding. That is NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Sure thing, Ari. Today, Turkey will be at the center of many Thanksgiving Day tables here in the U.S. In Taiwan, the bird has also become a popular dish, though it's cooked a little differently. NPR's Emily Fang gave it a try. Yang Bianghua has been working around turkeys for his entire life. His father first began raising them in the 1970s in Taiwan's Jiayi County. The males have these bright blue heads and fleshy snoods. Yes, they're called snoods that droop from their beaks. Wow. And Mr. Yang explains the longest snoods denote the alpha males. Turkeys are native to North America, but they've been on Taiwan since the 17th century, brought over by the Dutch, who briefly colonized the island. But turkeys didn't take off in Taiwan until the 20th century, as living standards improved. Turkey was even once a source of tension with the U.S. Yen Gaojin, the chair of Taiwan's ROC Turkey Raising Association, an industry group for breeders, explains. Because of a U.S.-Taiwan trade agreement in the 1970s, Taiwan once opened its market to American turkey meat, which had a big impact on local farmers. Local farmers protested, U.S. turkey meat imports stopped. But American white-feathered turkeys are still the dominant breed on the island. How they're raised and prepped is thoroughly Taiwanese, though per Mr. Yang. He professionally roasts turkeys for local clients. I roast the turkeys like Chinese roast duck. In the U.S., you bake a turkey in an oven on a tray. I hang my turkeys inside the oven so they heat evenly. And he says he will only use Taiwan-raised turkeys, which he says have firmer flesh and smell better. Mr. Yang's turkey is an exception, though. Most turkey in Taiwan is not roasted whole. It's most commonly consumed chopped up into succulent morsels and scattered across chewy, short-grained rice. The dish is called jiayi turkey rice. It's inspired by a similar popular dish with pork. I met turkey rice maestro Liu Zhongyuan to learn more. At his restaurant Liu Li Zhang, 
a shop his father began more than 50 years ago. The dish has become a classic in Taiwan, and Mr. Liu says turkey is much healthier for you than pork. He says he goes to the hospital every month and comes back with a clean bill of health each time. And he says Americans have been cooking turkey wrong this entire time. Turkey should not be baked, he emphasizes. It must be slowly boiled or steamed to lock in the juices. Roasting a bird can make its meat really dry, he says. His turkey is chewy and moist. Mr. Liu swears by using only the flesh of male turkeys. He claims it's got a better texture and is less fatty. It's then drizzled with soy sauce and rendered turkey fat. And at Mr. Liu's restaurant, it's also topped with crispy fried shallots and pickles. The combination totally works, and I wasn't the only one who thought so. Those are my parents. They happened to be visiting Taiwan for the first time ever, and they loved it. So much so that Jiayi turkey rice might be what we're having for our Thanksgiving dinner, too. Emily Fang, NPR News, Jiayi, Taiwan. This is NPR News. Some Native Americans see Thanksgiving as a national day of mourning. So what does it mean to celebrate Native American Heritage Day the very next day? While there's undeniable loss, there's still incredible forms of activism and advocacy and recent movements towards self-determination honoring indigenous people past and present on the next morning edition from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, a woman who gives birth in jail or prison typically is separated from her baby within hours or days. Minnesota now lets some moms stay out of prison and at home with their newborns. More on that program coming up in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities, and Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Hi there. It's Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR. This is the day when we all think about what we're thankful for. For me, the answer is easy. I'm thankful for you, for your trust in WBUR, for your time, I know how precious it is, and for your enduring support. Before I dash to put my first ever spatchcock turkey in the oven, I want to wish you and yours a happy Thanksgiving. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In the Middle East, officials say a four-day pause in the fighting between Israel and Hamas will begin Friday morning, a day later than planned, as negotiators there worked out the final details of the agreement to release 50 hostages being held by Hamas, as well as Palestinians imprisoned in Israel. Rudy Chen's son is one of the hostages who isn't on the list this time. He's an Israeli soldier who was captured by Hamas, but his father remains optimistic. Now, you know, we're kind of landing third. 
getting there to the finish line. You know, hopefully we get to home plate within the next couple of hours. So I think that actually provides more hope than where we were before. Much of northern Gaza has been left in shambles with entire neighborhoods erased by airstrikes and tank fires. Some buildings are still standing, but most are battered shells. Nearly one million Palestinians have fled as ground combat intensified in recent weeks. More actors are facing consequences for their comments about Israel's bombardment of Gaza. As NPR's Elizabeth Blair tells us, Academy Award winner Susan Sarandon has been dropped by her talent agency and actor Melissa Barrera has been fired from the movie Scream 7. At a recent pro-Palestinian rally in New York, Susan Sarandon said this. There are a lot of people that are afraid, afraid of being Jewish at this time and are getting a taste of what it feels like to be a Muslim. According to a source close to Sarandon, United Talent Agency dropped her shortly thereafter. Melissa Barrera, who starred in two of the Scream movies, has been showing her support of Palestinians on social media. On Instagram, she wrote that, quote, Western media only shows the Israeli side and that Gaza is being, quote, treated like a concentration camp. Scream co-producer Spyglass Media tells Variety it has zero tolerance for anti-Semitism. You're listening to NPR News. The World Health Organization is asking China's government to provide data on children in that country diagnosed with pneumonia and bacterial lung infections. NPR's Emily Fang tells us hospital pediatric wards in China are reported to be at full capacity. Seasonal illnesses are sweeping across much of China, and children are falling sick to various respiratory illnesses, leading the WHO to ask that China provide detailed information on the clusters of infections that are hitting cities across the country. China's health authority says it's mostly seasonal influenza, the virus that causes COVID-19, RSV, and a bacterial lung infection that infects mostly children that are being passed around. Meanwhile, reports from hospitals in Beijing, the capital, to Xiamen in southern China are all reporting an increase in patients. And city health authorities have been sharing information on local health clinics to prevent overflow. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. In Alaska, rescue efforts continue in a remote village for two children and one adult following a mudslide. The bodies of two other adults and a girl were found earlier this week north of Ketchikan, Alaska. It's an island only reachable by boat and aircraft. K-9 teams are searching along the waterline by boat along with ground teams in the big slide area. Alaska state troopers say volunteers came out in droves today to help in the search. Trading was mixed in Europe. No trading here. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. Elected officials in Boston spent part of the day handing out Thanksgiving meals this morning. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and other leaders helped serve hundreds of meals with the nonprofit Pine Street Inn. The organization estimates it will serve nearly 2,000 meals today. That includes about 120 turkeys. President Joe Biden is in Massachusetts today celebrating the holiday with his family in Nantucket. Air Force One arrived in Massachusetts earlier this year. The president and his family have celebrated Thanksgiving on the island since the 1970s. We can expect clear skies for tonight. We drop back down to about 35 degrees. Tomorrow, breezy, another chilly day, mid to upper 40s. Saturday, plenty of sunshine, colder, highs in the upper 30s. Right now, we've got 50 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. In the Netherlands, the party led by a far-right anti-Muslim populist emerged as the biggest winner of elections yesterday. It won the most seats in the Dutch parliament among dozens of parties, and it points to a trend of extremist populist parties gathering support throughout Europe. NPR's Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz is here. Hi, Rob. Hey, Ari. Tell us about the head of this party. Who is he and what does he stand for? Yeah, his name is Geert Wilders. He's 60 years old, and he's made a name for himself as a politician for his extreme anti-Muslim views that have been fueled by the country's migrant population, many of whom come from Muslim countries. He's called Islam a backward religion. He's made a call for his country to ban all mosques, and his views have prompted death threats. He's lived under police protection for years. He's also called for the Netherlands to exit the European Union. Here's what he said last night in his victory speech. And Ari, he's saying here that the Dutch voters have spoken and they want to return the Netherlands to the Dutch and stop what he called a tsunami of asylum seekers and migrants. And does his party's strong performance suggest that that type of sentiment is common in the Netherlands today? Well, you know, for many years, Wilders and his Freedom Party have ridden the wave of anti-immigrant sentiment in the Netherlands, and he's been a fixture in Dutch politics for a while. But he was generally seen as an extremist outlier in Dutch politics. But, you know, his party just won the most votes in yesterday's election, and this reflects a rising concern among voters about migration. But it is important to understand here that even though his party won the most votes, it was less than 25 percent of all votes. So He's not really a reflection of what most Dutch voters want, but it's also an important thing to understand that with around two dozen parties involved in this election, 25% of the vote is a pretty strong showing, and Filters is now in the position to try and bring in other parties to form a coalition government. Yeah, politics in the Netherlands works differently than in the U.S., so in the parliamentary system, the winning party often has to work with other parties to form a government. Is Wilders going to have enough support from other parties to do that? Well, Fitzgerald's party was able to win 37 seats in a 150-seat parliament, so he's going to need support from at least two other major parties to secure a majority. For years, uh, no other major party has been interested in teaming up with him. Several parties vowed never to do that, given his extreme views. But we are starting to see cracks in those promises. The, the new leader of the center-right party in the current government has appeared open to possibly forming a coalition with Wilders. And it's interesting, her stance on this prior to Election Day prompted Wilders to actually tone down his anti-Muslim rhetoric. In fact, he told supporters last night he would not focus on banning mosques or the Koran, saying there would be more important issues to tackle. But many political observers are having a hard time believing that he's had this sudden change of heart. Well, we don't know if Filders is going to be the prime minister, but the Netherlands is one of the strongest economies in the European Union. And if Wilders becomes the leader of that country, what does it mean for its role as an EU member? 
Yeah, you know, the Netherlands will definitely not be leaving the EU anytime soon. I mean, he wants to do that, but but because it would require more than his party to support that, that's probably not going to happen. But his victory is the latest example of voters supporting an anti-immigrant populist party. Uh, back in September, a far-left party led by politician Robert Fico won the Slovakian election on a similar platform. And last year, Italy elected a party that shares the same anti-immigrant beliefs. Even here in Germany, the far-right AFD party, also against immigration, is polling at better numbers than each of the three parties currently in power. So it is clear that Europeans are becoming more and more frustrated by what they see as out-of-control migration, and they're voting for parties who are promising to do something about that. And Piers Rob Schmitz, thank you. Thanks, Ari. Okay, one of the most important questions of today, at least for millions of people hosting or going to Thanksgiving dinners, is pumpkin or sweet potato pie? As Harvest Public Media contributor Chad Davis reports, both desserts are similar, but they carry very different histories. Photos and memorabilia line the walls of Old Henry Restaurant in suburban St. Louis. It's one of those restaurants with a wall of pictures of local and national celebrities. And longtime customers come to the cafeteria for soul food staples like fish, mac and cheese, and greens. When it comes to Thanksgiving pie, owner Ada Joyce Taylor and her granddaughter Adriana Black have a definite opinion. Potato pie. potato pie, yeah, definitely, yeah. Sweet potato pie, because I'm looking for that sweetness in a pie. The flaky crust contains a deep orange filling made from peeled and boiled sweet potatoes. Executive chef Tracy Stevenson and other bakers feel the holiday crunch. Uh, number week, I would say that we go through at least 15 to 20 sweet potato pies. During the holiday, I would say 40 to 50. Millions of Americans will choose between sweet potato pie or pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving dessert. Both are American staples with a starchy custard-like filling, but pumpkin pie tends to be more spice-heavy than sweet, while sweet potato pie is typically lighter. The reasons why people choose one over the other often trace back to where the person was raised and their race. Even though pumpkins were available in the South, sweet potato becomes the one of choice. And I think maybe that has something to do with the African presence. That's soul food historian and James Beard award-winning author Adrian Miller. He says the potatoes may have resonated among enslaved people because they're somewhat similar to yams grown in West Africa. But he says cooking the natively grown sweet potato into a pie that's a more European influence. So it's really the expertise of these enslaved cooks making something unfamiliar to them to please their slaveholders that eventually gets embraced and adopted. Since then, sweet potato pie has become a soul food staple in the black community and common on dinner tables across the South. But it's pumpkin pie that plays a central role in the portrait of a quintessential Thanksgiving dinner. The pie dates back to the colonial period, where settlers learned how to boil or steam native pumpkins and mash them into a filling. Bruce Craig is an Illinois-based culinary historian. He says a book from 1827 by author and activist Sarah Josepha Hale is largely responsible for the dessert's connection to Thanksgiving. She said, pumpkin pie is the American pie from our founding fathers. But he says Hale got it a bit wrong. The pilgrims who came to New England brought this pie with them. They didn't. It's not true. <laughs> but, but she said so. So it became the thing. It became the Yankee pie. And it remains incredibly popular to this day. 
at the Blue Owl Bakery in House Springs, Missouri, owner Kim Byerly and an assembly line of bakers are creating all kinds of pumpkin pie variations. These are our pumpkin gooey butter cheesecakes. So they've got like a pumpkin spice crust on the bottom and then a pumpkin pie filling with the pumpkin mousse on top and whipped cream. Cindy Watu works here as a baker. She says when she takes a bite of the pie, it takes her back to her childhood. I'm partial to the spices that are in it. Um, it's not like so sweet. And then um, it, it just reminds me of home, of family. And for many across the country, that's why they stick with Team Pumpkin or Team Sweet Potato Pie, because of the memories they've made when they've eaten it. For NPR News, I'm Chad Davis. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. When an incarcerated woman gives birth, she is typically separated from her baby within days or even hours. The state of Minnesota now allows some of these moms to spend more time at home with their new babies. Elisa Roth has this report. When Victoria Lopez went into labor, she was in jail in southern Minnesota, waiting to get sent to prison on drug charges. Her twin girls were delivered by emergency C-section, and when they got taken to the NICU at another hospital, Lopez wasn't allowed to go. So I had to say goodbye to my daughters, and I didn't know when I'd see them again. And um, I sat there in that room alone. Well, not alone. I had the guards with me. She was in that room when she got a call from the parenting coordinator at the prison. Lopez remembers the woman telling her, Due to your situation with the twins needing NICU and extra care, we'd like to put you in this program. The program is Healthy Start, which lets incarcerated women stay home with their babies for up to a year. Safia Khan is deputy commissioner for the Minnesota Department of Corrections, which oversees Healthy Start. The idea was how do we prevent that separation from happening at a very critical time for the development of that newborn baby and to allow for that mother-child bond. Where are you going? Victoria Hello. Lopez's Facebook page Hello. is filled with pictures and videos Hi. that illustrate Hi. that bond. Her cooing to a tiny Hi. baby in a bouncy chair and talking to them Hello. as they crawl around. A handful of states, including Indiana and Washington, have nurseries that let incarcerated mothers keep their babies with them inside prison. But Minnesota lets women stay home with their child. All pregnant and recently postpartum women who come into the state's prison system are considered eligible. So far, 38 women have qualified, though only 12 have been accepted. Women can be rejected if their sentences are too long or if their parental rights have been terminated, among other reasons. The Department of Corrections is trying to make it more accessible. But there's a far bigger question why these women are getting caught up in the criminal legal system to begin with. For me, the most important and critical piece of this puzzle is just how complicated these families and circumstances are. Rebecca Schlafer is a professor at the University of Minnesota whose work focuses on families and incarceration. She's currently evaluating the project for the Department of Corrections. We need to move upstream to 
earlier interventions and earlier investments in maternal and child health as a crime prevention strategy so that we are not at the end of a line here saying, how do we solve all of these really complex social problems with one intervention called the Healthy Start Act? Because there will always be complicated situations like Victoria Lopez's. Soon after she was arrested, Lopez started substance use treatment. She got a job and enrolled in community college. But the judge sentenced her to 88 months in prison anyway. So the Department of Corrections legally can't let her stay out any longer. Lopez started her sentence just days after her twins turned one. And she's currently appealing the decision. For NPR News, I'm Elisa Roth in St. Paul. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this Thanksgiving Day. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. It's 448 coming up in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR. Texas border cities have seen a huge spike this year in high-speed car chases and deadly crashes tied to suspected migrant smugglers. Residents and advocacy groups want the pursuit policy change. That story on All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, clear skies. We drop back down to a low of about 35 degrees. Next couple of days should be sunny and dry. Tomorrow, chillier though. Breezy again, mid to upper 40s for tomorrow. Saturday, plenty of sunshine. Colder, highs in the upper 30s. Sunday, we'll see some sun, then increasing clouds. Rain could move in Sunday night into Monday. Right now, we have 50 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Greener You, working throughout New England to integrate climate action into the entire construction process for a fossil-free future. Learn more at greeneru.com. And Loomis Sales, offering an undergraduate summer internship development program that provides first-generation college students with the strategies, skills, and access to networks for success in the investment management industry while instilling a sense of social responsibility. Some Native Americans see Thanksgiving as a national day of mourning. So what does it mean to celebrate Native American Heritage Day the very next day? While there's undeniable loss, there's still incredible forms of activism and advocacy and recent movements towards self-determination. Honoring indigenous people past and present on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. France is home to Europe's largest Jewish and Muslim populations. Many fear that anger over the Israel-Hamas conflict could spill over into French streets, but one place touts how it has fostered friendship across religions. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. Rabbi Michel Serfati and Imam Mouloud El Wazia greet each other on the sidewalk in front of the synagogue in the Paris suburb of Ries Orangis. The Imam has walked over from his mosque just up the street. The two religious leaders who've known each other for 30 years are about to sit down for their annual couscous lunch put on by the rabbi. <laughs> 
As people take their seats at several long tables set up inside the synagogue, Rabbi Serfati welcomes them. The deeply rooted mutual regard we hold for each other all these years secures our friendship, he says. We have the same face and our humanity comes before all our beliefs and religion. This is the 15th annual Rabbi's Couscous featuring the North African staple made from wheat granules served with meat and sauce. Marzouk Mimam, who is Muslim, has attended every one. We come out of friendship to discuss lots of things together. Maybe it's a little rare. I don't know of another town where you have the Jews and the Muslims together like this on the same street. These diners say the violence playing out on TV screens has not dented their friendship. Mark Itar, who's Jewish, says most agree on what needs to happen in the Middle East. After this, there has to be a structure that reconciliates and integrates everyone. There have to be two states and peace. This violence has been going on for too long. Bonjour, madame. Two days earlier, Rabbi Serfati showed me around his synagogue where the couscous sauce with carrots, zucchini, and chickpeas was already simmering away, its spicy aroma wafting through the air. This synagogue was built in the 1960s after massive Jewish immigration from North Africa following the independence of former French colonies. Seventy percent of French Jews trace their origins to Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia, where they lived side by side with Muslims for centuries and shared many traditions, like couscous. Muslim immigration to France from these same countries picked up about a decade later. Bon appétit, Imam El Wasir wishes everyone at the lunch. Both he and the rabbi immigrated from Morocco. He says over the weekend they visited each other's houses of worship. They came to the mosque and we had tea and laughed and discussed the Torah and the Quran, he says. Our friendship is very important. There has been a resurgence of anti-Semitism in France since the conflict broke out October 7th. French Jews are on edge. Muslims fear being scapegoated or conflated with terrorists. Mayor Stéphane Rafali, who is neither Jewish nor Muslim, laments that the rest of France can't be like Ries Orangis. French society is having troubles these days with the resurgence of violence in the Middle East. But things are good here. I call it the spirit of Jean Moulin Street. Betty Itar, whose Jewish family hails from Tunisia, says she has very close Muslim friends. Oui, oui, j'ai des amis musulmans. It's not rare if you want it. It's wonderful to share our religions and cultures, especially over food. This is exactly what French secularism and integration is supposed to look like, says Nordine Siana, head of the town's fire department and a Muslim. We all live together under the same flag, and we defend France. We are also trying to teach our kids how to share and learn about different cultures. <laughs> You all look ready for seconds, says a beaming Rabbi Serfati. I ask him if the lunch is a success, considering the times. We're not looking for some flashy success, he says. This is a natural ritual when you live together. It's what I call family conviviality. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Ries Orangis, France.
Salem, Massachusetts, is where Harry Houdini famously escaped from a jail cell in 1906, and at least since then the town has attracted magicians. Lately, enrollment in Salem's Historic Magic Society has been dwindling, so members are pulling up their sleeves in search of new recruits. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more. You don't see this every day. Nearly a dozen magicians of all ages are packed into a room, armed with rubber bands, props, a cute brown rabbit, and more than a few dog-eared decks of cards. I have a trick right here I can show you if you're interested in seeing it. I have four kings here. Name any one of those four kings. Bill Jensen's Houdini emblazoned tie may or may not play a part in his sleight of hand. That's what they call close-up magic. You do it right under people's noses. Jensen is president of the Society of American Magicians Witch City Assembly. He's a retired postal worker and a hobbyist magician. Other society members are professionals. We have some people that are clowns. We have some people that do balloons, uh, bubbles. The National Society of American Magicians is the world's oldest magic organization. In the early 1900s, it boomed under Harry Houdini's leadership. Salem's chapter was founded 50 years ago, but membership has been disappearing. The club blames the pandemic, shuttered magic shops, and YouTube, where a lot of newbies go to learn tricks. Now the magicians are holding events like this to woo and wow recruits. You don't want to expose all your secrets, but you want to give them a little taste of something so that maybe they'll come back another time. And then as you move up into the group, we have people who do everything from just a, a basic card trick to sawing somebody in half. That sounds intriguing to the one young recruit who shows up. I just think I should saw someone in half in my life. Will McLaughlin is here with his dad. He's 12 years old. I started doing magic because I was looking at Dan Rhodes on YouTube Shorts, and I just saw one of his tricks, and I slowed the video down, and I decided to do some of them on my own. Now he's surrounded. So, Will, do you know how to shuffle a deck of cards? Not that good. Well, that's okay. This is a good learning experience. There's a pharaoh shuffle, an overhand shuffle, an underhand shuffle. There's the show-off behind the back shuffle. I have you shuffled the deck or I shuffle the deck. It doesn't matter. I don't need to know what that card is. I want to know what this card is on the bottom. That's my card. Those five years of practice, guys. Come on. There we go. Look. Thank you. Thank you. That's 39-year-old career magician Steven Silva. He grew up in Salem and learned tricks at magic shops. He recently rejoined the society to help keep it alive. There are magicians that have come up that have thought of things that may be kind of exclusive or underground. And so in order to see some of those things, you have to come out and meet new people and learn new magic. Well, Will McLaughlin is game and says yes, he'll join the Magician's Youth Program. Well, I did like all the magic tricks, and I'm still wondering how some of them are done. While the Magic Society only nabbed one new member at this event, its magicians believe more will materialize for the next one. For NPR News, I'm Andrea Shea. It's NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, 
This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up next on All Things Considered, Texas border cities have seen a huge spike this year in high-speed car chases and deadly crashes tied to suspected migrant smugglers. Residents and advocacy groups want the pursuit policy changed. Stay with us. We have 49 degrees right now in Boston at 459. We can expect some clear skies for tonight. Temperatures around 35 degrees. A full forecast is coming up next on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Our aim is for this deal to end with a lasting truth. Qatar has been a key broker in talks between Israel and Hamas. We'll look at the outsized role of this small Middle Eastern country this Thursday, November 23rd on All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. This hour, high-speed chases to catch migrant smugglers are becoming more common along the border. Is it worth the risk? Are we endangering the public for something like these, these individuals who almost exclusively present no history, no violent tendencies, and no weapons. Later, why a woman who died of cancer last week at age 38 wanted her legacy to be forgiving others' medical debt. It's just wild to me, and I think it would have been wild to her, that she is wiping more than $60 million of medical debt off the slate. It's unbelievable. Plus, what's coming to movie theaters this holiday season? After the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. A temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas starts tomorrow morning. Qatari officials say initially 13 hostages held by Hamas will be released in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. This is negotiators work out details of the four-day deal. Meanwhile, critics say Israel hasn't provided proof of Hamas military centers beneath Gaza City's Al-Shifa hospital. But Israel is producing videos and other evidence that point to an extensive tunnel network. NPR's Greg Myrie has more. The latest video features Israeli military spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari. He provides a tour from inside a tunnel he says is underneath Al-Shifa hospital, which Israeli troops have taken over. Above us is a hospital. Above us, patient, wounded, doctors, all being a human shield for this tunnel system here at Chifa Hospital. The video shows long concrete tunnels, a room with an air conditioning unit, as well as a toilet and a sink. The Israelis are also displaying weapons they say were found. Hamas acknowledges it built tunnels, but denies having a headquarters under the hospital. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. 
Protests broke out in Dublin, some violent, after three children and a woman were attacked by a man with a knife. Authorities say all were injured and one of the children, a five-year-old girl, is getting emergency treatment at a hospital. Police Superintendent Liam Garrity says bystanders jumped in to help the victims. Members of the public did intervene at a very, very early stage and again, we would um, applaud those members of the public for getting involved in, in such, a, such a traumatic and potentially dangerous situation for themselves. Police say a man in his 50s who is also hospitalized is a person of interest and that they believe he acted alone. Protesters fired flares and set off fireworks at the police cordon around the scene. Police say the protesters turned violent as they went to secure that scene. Soot from coal-fired power plants killed hundreds of thousands of Americans over the past two decades, according to a study published today in the journal Science. And here's Alejandra Boranda has more. Pollution from coal-fired power plants is twice as harmful as other small particle pollution. And between 1999 and 2020, it was responsible for the deaths of 460,000 older Americans. That's the conclusion of this new study. Lucas Henneman led it. He's a researcher at George Mason University. We know that people died earlier in, in areas, earlier than they would have in areas with, with higher exposure. The upshot, air quality regulations and coal plant closures work. Pollution from coal has dropped to 95% since the late 1990s. Deaths also dropped from around 43,000 a month to 1,600. While coal burning in the U.S. has fallen, use of coal around the world actually grew in 2022. Alejandro Borunda, NPR News. Wall Street is closed today in observance of Thanksgiving. You're listening to NPR News. A market research firm says more than one in five consumers plans to pick up ready-made Thanksgiving meals from restaurants. From member station KJZZ, Christina Estes has more on demand in Phoenix. It's crazy. Josh Garcia with Miracle Mile Deli says they've sold out of Thanksgiving meals, mostly because order sizes are bigger this year. We've found that we're doing families of 6, 8, 10, 12, 15. Last year, they served 225 pounds of turkey. This year, more than 400. Technomics survey found more people planning restaurant meals will dine in versus carry out, but not at Miracle Mile. We are closed on Thanksgiving Day. It's been a family day for our family and our team for over 74 years. When they return, they'll start working on to-go meals for Hanukkah and Christmas. For NPR News, I'm Christina Estes in Phoenix. In New York City today, huge crowds gathered to view the 97th annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It took place under cool temperatures but sunny skies as it made its way through the streets with longtime fan favorites SpongeBob SquarePants and Snoopy flying high above the streets. More than two dozen floats participated, along with high school marching bands from around the country. The parade was briefly disrupted, though, when pro-Palestinian demonstrators in jumpsuits covered in fake blood briefly glued their hands to the road. Police say they had made several arrests. And Wall Street is closed today for the Thanksgiving holiday. I'm Janine Herbst, and you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. This week is one of the busiest in the nation for train travel, especially along the busy Northeast Corridor. Some 80,000 travelers are expected to take trains out of Greater Boston alone. A reminder that if you are taking the T or bus at all today, we're on a Sunday schedule. It's a weekend schedule for the commuter rail, and there's no ferry service today. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. A four-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas will begin tomorrow morning. If all goes according to plan, over those four days, Hamas will release 50 women and children held as hostages, and Israel will release 150 Palestinian women and minors held in Israeli jails. Humanitarian aid will also enter Gaza. Those details came today from the Foreign Ministry of Qatar. Majid Al-Ansari is a ministry spokesman. No matter how much aid you are going to bring in, there will be certainly uh, more need for aid. But we are hoping to bring in as much as possible within the confounds of the deal. And of course, our aim is for this deal to end with a lasting truth. Let's talk more about the role that Qatar is playing as a broker in this deadly conflict with Badr Al-Saif, a history professor at Kuwait University. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. What stood out to you in that announcement today from the Qatari foreign ministry? The announcement today is really the towering of weeks of discussions and mediation efforts that Qatar has led along with its partners, Egypt and the U.S. particularly. It's, you know, a small glimmer of hope in a very bleak chapter in the region's history. I felt that there was a lot of care and attention in the details the word truce pops up in between as if meeting a middle ground between all parties. Mm. There were two pillars that were announced, the exchange of women and minors, and there is also the humanitarian aid. The logistics behind it is what's most important here. How will the Qataris realize that the deal doesn't get disrupted within those four days? And let me also ask you about the ambition for a larger deal. We heard the spokesman say our aim is for this deal to end with a lasting truce on a scale from we've got the paperwork, we just need to sign it all the way to on the other end. This is wishful thinking. It's not going to happen. Like, how real do you think it is that this could lead to something bigger, more ambitious, longer lasting? I mean, it's going to head there anyway. The question is, when will that happen? You remember from the Israeli rhetoric in the past few weeks, there was a stubborn take from the Israeli government that there will not be any kind of ceasefire until they distract Hamas. That was the intended goal. And here we are today, and we are going into a truce in a few hours. So it says something about us being able to manage the situation. I think we stand at a 50-50 chance. It takes a lot of pressure from all parties. And let's not forget, this is a small number of the hostages that Hamas has. We're talking 50 out of close to 240. So there is an incentive from the Israeli side to continue with this process. We've talked before with you about the role of Qatar in these negotiations, but I've just been wondering logistically how they actually work. It's not as though Egypt, the US, Qatar, Israel, and Hamas are all hopping on a Zoom. Can you tell us anything about how the back and forth happens? Oh, if uh, if we can do things on Zoom, life would be so much easier. I, agree. <laughs> uh, look, uh, I think where Qatar stands to benefit the most among those different partners is that it hosts Hamas upon U.S. request that was made close to a decade ago. It hosts them. They have an office in Qatar. They have an office in Qatar. Qatar is playing the shuttle role between Hamas and its personnel and between the other interlocutors, whether it's the Americans, the Egyptians, and the Israelis. And mind you, even within Hamas, they're also having their different communications within them. That's not quite clear to everyone because a few days ago, there was a quiet pause in where the deal is because they couldn't reach the person of the military wing in Gaza from Hamas. And then when they heard back from him, they were able to move ahead because if you remember, they needed 
the list of names of hostages. They wanted to verify that they're fine and alive and to compare it with the list that's going to be coming on the prisoner's side from Israel. So it's not a quite direct communication. It's multi-layered and it involves various steps. Central to all of this is the Qatari role. Mm-hmm. Qatar has played a version of this role between Western powers and Iran, Yemen, Afghanistan. Do you think its role in this war, in this mediation, has changed Qatar's position in Middle East diplomacy? If there is any change, Ari, it's about them becoming a more prolific, credible mediator. This is not only about dealing with Middle East issues, which has been the case in this conflict, but as you've listed from the various cases and examples, it had stretched across to other conflicts. I think with time, they've been able to perfect their manual, if you may, their operations, and the logistics that comes with it will help hopefully strike a longer-term deal, not only in Palestine and Israel, but hopefully in other places. And it's quite interesting because Qatar, as you know, is one of the smallest countries in the region Mm -hmm. in terms of population, size, but it's been able to play that outsized role basically due to its A, ambition, B, its financial assets. It's one of the richest in the region. And third, it feels that it can provide something to contribute to the peace and security. You cannot have prosperity if there is a war in your backyard. So there is also some self-interest in all of this. Whenever this war ends, be that days, weeks, or months from now, do you think it will likely be thanks to talks through Qatar? Qatar will very likely play a very key role in all of this. But let me tell you something. Without the U.S., we cannot expect much change to happen because they're the ones who hold leverage against Israel. My expectation is if they want this to be sustainable, they need to plan from now about the day after when it comes to peace negotiations. A two-state solution is a must. It has been delayed more than once. We cannot go back to a war in the region every few years because of this intractable conflict and disagreements and opinions. That's what needs to be done. That's Badr Al-Saif, a professor of history at Kuwait University. Thank you very much. Thank you. High-speed chases have surged along the southern border in Texas. State troopers pursue suspected migrant smugglers as part of Texas Governor Greg Abbott's controversial border enforcement effort called Operation Lone Star. Many chases end with crashes, serious injuries, and even deaths. As Angela Kocherga of member station KTEP reports, some want the policy changed. Dian Dorado recalls the spring Saturday morning when he and others in this El Paso neighborhood were coming and going from an estate sale. They'd park their cars along the street. I myself was standing right in front talking to another man and I was helping him load some of the things. Just then he says a car came careening around the corner nearly hitting a rock wall followed by a Texas state trooper in close pursuit. Both of them sped right through here as where I was standing, I could feel the air that was being pushed up against my pants. Dorado says if he had not jumped out of the way, he would have been run over. He's a retired law enforcement officer and rushed to help the trooper detain the driver, who got cornered in a nearby cul-de-sac. He watched over the man while the trooper chased two other men who had bailed out of the car. He strongly supports the police, but not the trooper's high-speed pursuit policy. In this case, 
he should have slowed it down and not attempt to do that chase through here. Texas state troopers have chased suspected migrant smugglers down residential streets, county roads, and on the busy interstate highway that cuts through El Paso. It's happened here more than 328 times this year alone. More than 30 people have been injured, some seriously. That includes bystanders and four state troopers, according to Department of Public Safety or DPS records. Seven people have died in collisions in El Paso so far this year, and that's just El Paso. State data show a huge spike in high-speed pursuits in counties all along the southern border. Human Rights Watch will soon release a report on the rise of dangerous and deadly vehicle pursuits under Operation Lone Star. Bob Leibel is with Human Rights Watch in Austin. So we think that certainly DPS and other law enforcement agencies need to revise their policies in order to not be pursuing people at these kinds of speeds. El Paso residents raised those same concerns about high-speed chases during a recent town hall meeting hosted by the Texas Department of Public Safety. The subject was human smuggling, but questions from the public quickly turned to the pursuit policy. Local attorney Eduardo Solis asked why not track smugglers' vehicles, often driven by young people with U.S. citizenship, from a distance rather than give chase. Are we endangering the public for something like these individuals who almost exclusively present no history, no violent tendencies, and no weapons? Local law enforcement agencies in El Paso, including the sheriff and city police, say their policy is to only pursue a suspect who's committed a violent crime or who poses an imminent threat to the public. But state troopers have a very different policy. Joe Sanchez, the DPS regional director, says his agency gives the individual trooper the power to decide whether to chase or not. We chase what we can chase to do it safely and properly. If we feel that we're going to endanger too many people from doing it, then we're going to back off. They say that they're going to take precautionary methods, but I don't see it. I really don't. That's El Paso County Commissioner Sergio Coronado. He says in recent months, his district has seen at least 25 crashes following pursuits of suspected migrant smugglers. He's especially concerned about what's known as a pit maneuver, which stands for precision immobilization technique. It involves law enforcement hitting the side of a fleeing vehicle to get it to spin and come to a stop. But that tactic has also caused dangerous rollover accidents. We've got the technology to be able to follow these vehicles and not have to do these crashes or these pit maneuvers where you put the lives in danger, not just about the individuals in the vehicles, but the innocent bystanders. A new state law makes it a crime to illegally enter Texas. Some border residents are concerned that when that law goes into effect, there will be even more high-speed chases of migrant smugglers or anyone suspected of entering the state illegally. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherga in El Paso. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, scientists are tracking a mysterious and sometimes fatal respiratory illness in dogs appearing across several states. They say it seems to be caused by a bacteria that's never been studied before. That story ahead on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. 
Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. On Wall Street, the stock market was closed for the Thanksgiving holiday. Cambridge Biotech Evolo is closing. The company filed paperwork with the federal government announcing its closure this week. Boston Business Journal reports the company's eczema medicine failed in clinical trials earlier this year. And if you're out there on the road today, gas prices in Massachusetts keep ticking down. The statewide average is $3.41 a gallon. According to AAA, that's down $0.04 from last week and $0.38 cheaper than last year. Road trips this fall mean you've got time to listen. Catch your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live or rewind and play them back with the WBUR app. Download it for free before you hit the road. And thanks. Mainly clear skies for tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, chillier and breezy again. Mid to upper 40s under sunny skies. Saturday, plenty of sun, colder, upper 30s. Sunday, some sun, then increasing clouds by the afternoon. Rain can move in Sunday night into Monday. The sun rises tomorrow at 645. Right now, we have 50 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Casey McIntyre was 38 years old when she died last week from ovarian cancer. After her death, a note she'd written was posted on social media. It started, to my friends, if you're reading this, I have passed away. The post contained photos of her with her family, her husband, Andrew Gregory, and their 18-month-old daughter, Grace. It continues, to celebrate my life, I've arranged to buy up others' medical debt and then destroy the debt. More than four in 10 American households owe medical debt. The nonprofit group RIP Medical Debt is working to reduce that. For every dollar donated, they relieve up to $100 of medical debt. They buy the debt millions of dollars at a time at a fraction of the original cost. McIntyre included a link to the fund she set up with RIP Medical Debt in her honor. And as of today, it has raised more than $600,000, canceling around $60 million of medical debt. Well, to tell us more about Casey and her debt cancellation campaign, we're joined by her husband, Andrew Gregory. Andrew, thanks for speaking with us on this Thanksgiving, and I'm sorry for your loss. Thanks. I, I really appreciate you having me on. Before we talk about the campaign, can you give us a snapshot of what Casey was like? As I was reading her posthumous post, her sense of humor really came through. Casey was very, very, very funny. Um, She was just a hilarious woman from our very first date. She was cracking me up and I was cracking her up. And we um, never stopped laughing even while, frankly, you know, she was struggling with her diagnosis of stage four ovarian cancer for four years. Um... Uh, when I look back at that, I, it's pretty remarkable. She had good medical insurance. And so 
this fundraising campaign is not to pay off her medical debt, but she was very aware that so many people in the country do not have access to good care. When did she become passionate about that? Was was there some kind of personal connection to the cause? You know, she worked as a publisher at Penguin Random House. So she had this really excellent um, corporate insurance. But frankly, like as Casey met other uh, cancer patients, like on Instagram, on Twitter, other young uh, patients with ovarian cancer, because it's very rare to have ovarian cancer when you're as young as, as Casey was diagnosed at 34. Um, people are looking at personal bankruptcy. People are looking at deciding whether they will receive care. People are looking at which bills they will stop paying for their care. And Casey and I were just keenly aware, both of us, that our, our bills were not zero, but they were much closer to zero. They were doable for us. The other people were just being financially destroyed. Was there one conversation the two of you had where she said, this is what I want my legacy to be after I'm gone. This is what I want to happen. You know, last March, we saw a video online that was a little bit of a viral post where a Moravian church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, not too far from where I grew up, um, burned $3 million of debt. And one thing they did that was really cool is all local debt. Hmm. They destroyed all of the medical debt in Yadkin County, North Carolina. And I just think that is really cool. And I showed that post to Casey, and they had done it through RIP Medical Debt as well. And Casey and I just, I think we saw it while we were in Morris Sloan Kettering's waiting room. You're just in there scrolling all day long while you're waiting um, for chemotherapy to start. Um, and Casey and I said, this is going to be one of our monthly donations. You know, we have a couple charities we give to. We're going to give to RIP Medical Debt. And Casey came very, very close to um, dying around the end of May. Um, and while she was in the hospital, uh, we came to an agreement that this is what we were going to do. And Casey... Um, was very excited about it, and she got out of the hospital, which we were very um, lucky that she did. Uh, she entered home hospice at the recommendation of her oncologist, and we were really lucky that she lived for six months. There's a, you know, how sometimes you're brushing your teeth with a loved one, and like all of a sudden you have a much realer conversation than you usually would have because you're brushing your teeth for some reason. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like at the beginning of July, we were brushing our teeth, and Casey looked at me all of a sudden and was like, "Did you think I'd be alive in July?" And I was like, no, definitely not. Did you think you'd be alive? And she's like, oh, no, definitely not. We'd never talked about it in June, never. But, wow. you know, it was just luck that some issues she was dealing with that really seemed like she would live for two or three weeks when she got out of the hospital cleared up, and she was able to live until November 12th. And she was 38 years old. Yeah. Do you think she could have imagined that this would have gone as viral as it has and raise as much money as it has raised? I... I do not think Casey could have possibly imagined this response. The global press coverage has gotten, um, even as I, I think she would have thought that it would have gotten some notice, but it's just wild to me. And I think it would have been wild to her that she is wiping more than $60 million of medical debt off the slate. That's uh, it's unbelievable to, to me. And I think it would have been unbelievable to her. Do you have any way of knowing who you've helped? I mean, obviously, $60 million of medical debt, give or take, is, is, is a lot of people. Do you have any way of knowing who's affected? Well, I was able to talk to the CEO of RIP Medical Debt, Allison Sesso, and um, one thing that's really uh, that really blew me away is I, I said to her, like, hey, we set this up as a national campaign. Would it be possible to set, like, maybe shift it to be more like New York City? Because Casey was such a consummate New Yorker. And Allison said, um, Andrew, like, this is too much medical debt for New York City hmm. for us to buy. Like, we have to do a bigger 
area. And she also said, and I don't know what I'm going to say, but she said, there's going to be a letter. Like each one of these people gets a letter in the mail that says your debt is gone. Like you're free of this debt. And she said, you'll get to write part of that letter, Andrew. So I'll have to think about what Casey would have wanted to say. So each of those people yeah. will know about your late wife. Yeah. Have you thought about what you're going to say in that letter? Um, I think I'll try to draw from what she said in her... Um, in her last post and, and some of what I've written about her, you know, that people can find in the obituary that I've, I put up online. Do you want to leave us with one other Casey anecdote? I, I, I will. And this, this is something that her mom told me last night. Um, Casey often told me as a publisher and a publicist that the crown jewel, uh, you'll think I'm buttering you up, but she really said the crown jewel of any book publicity campaign was being on all things considered. Uh, our, <laughs> and, um, Andrew, and as, I did not and expect no, you to remember your as, late wife with flattery for this but program. But as a young publicist, as a young publicist, her mom said that she remembers the day that she called her the first time that she was on All Things Considered, and she and her mom cried on the phone, knowing that this was a big moment in Casey's career, that she'd gotten a book on All Things Considered. And I, I think it's extraordinary that Casey's campaign has reached so many, that Casey's sense of humor has reached so many. And, I, you know, thanks for helping it continue to reach more people, Ari. Well, as a publicist, that conversation likely never mentioned her, was not about her. And I'm glad to be able to have a conversation that is. Andrew Gregory speaking there about his late wife, Casey McIntyre's medical debt cancellation fund. Andrew, thank you and happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for having me. And if you go to the page RIP Medical Debt, you can find the campaign for Casey McIntyre. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. It's just about 5.30. Coming up on All Things Considered, a busload of hungry tourists and a restaurant kitchen with a near-empty pantry. What could have been a disaster turned into an improvised recipe that's been pleasing crowds for nearly six decades. That story coming up on the radio and the WBUR app. Starlit skies tonight, lows in the mid-30s. We'll need that windbreaker again for tomorrow. Strong wind gusts tomorrow, chilly, mid to upper 40s. Saturday, plenty of sunshine, colder, highs in the upper 30s. Sunday, some sun, increasing clouds. Rain moves in Sunday night into Monday. We have 49 degrees right now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Merrimack Repertory Theater with a Christmas carol. A new adaptation highlighting Charles Dickens' time in Lowell. Performances begin November 29th. Tickets at MRT.org. Hi there. It's Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR. This is the day when we all think about what we're thankful for. For me, the answer is easy. I'm thankful for you. For your trust in WBUR, for your time, I know how precious it is. And for your enduring support. Before I dash to put my first ever spatchcock turkey in the oven, I want to wish you and yours a happy Thanksgiving.
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Qatar says it's working with Israel and Hamas to finalize the details of a four-day pause in fighting in Gaza. Mediators say the delay has been caused by paperwork rather than disagreements. A spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces, Peter Lerner, says the military will continue with its mission for now. I think it's important to understand that we have a very, I would say, questionable history with Hamas and ceasefires. They never seem to hold their fire. So we will be in defensive positions, holding our positions, making sure that we are well defended, well protected, but also very vigilant in case any uh, attacks originate from Hamas, from the Gaza Strip, whether it's rockets or uh, attacks against the forces on the ground. Lerner says under the agreement announced this week, the pause in fighting would secure the release of 50 Israeli hostages in exchange for more than 100 Palestinian prisoners being held in Israel. The temporary ceasefire began sometime Friday with humanitarian aid to follow as soon as possible. Finland is closing all but one of its border crossings with Russia amid a big increase in people seeking asylum. We get more on that from Terry Schultz. As a trickle of asylum seekers coming to Finland from Russia rose to dozens per day and up to 700 so far this month, Helsinki closed the four southernmost border crossings. Arrivals continued to climb, so now the Finnish government decided that as of Friday, only the station farthest north would remain open. Finnish authorities say asylum seekers are getting assistance on the Russian side, but Russian officials are warning that conditions for accommodating the groups are deteriorating. 50 agents from the EU border control agency Frontex are headed north to make clear, says Home Affairs Commissioner Ulva Johansson, that the Finnish border with Russia is the EU border and that Helsinki has the bloc's full support. You're listening to NPR News. Thanksgiving is peak time for pie, but for the small town of Springdale, Utah, near Zion National Park, the bumbleberry pie is a year-round attraction, as David Condos of member station KUER tells us it all started with an improvised recipe. One day in the mid-1960s, a big bus of tourists arrived unexpectedly at Constance Madsen's restaurant, Grandma's Kitchen. She didn't have enough of any single pie filling to feed the hungry crowd, so she threw together a combination of whatever berries were on hand, and bumbleberry pie was born. Six decades later, its ingredients remain a closely guarded secret. Stan Smith is the restaurant's current owner. Recipe does not change. We get bakers in there, we say, this is the recipe, these are the ingredients, this is how we make it, do it our way. The mystery hasn't kept customers away, though. Smith says the Bumbleberry Bakery has gone through up to 13 tons of berries in a single year. For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Springdale, Utah. The unofficial start of the holiday shopping season kicks off tomorrow as retailers offer discounts on merchandise and other enticements to get folks to open their wallets. But a recent slowdown in consumer spending could temper Black Friday sales as consumers face the pressure of dwindling savings, increased credit card debt, and of course that stubborn inflation. No trading on Wall Street today. U.S. markets will be open for half a day tomorrow. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. Cambridge police are investigating a fatal shooting early this morning. Law enforcement say two people were shot, shot shortly after midnight. Both individuals were transported to Boston Hospital, where one victim, a 27-year-old woman, was pronounced dead, and a 26-year-old man is being treated for non-life-threatening injuries. 
The number of families in Massachusetts struggling to get food on the table is at an historic high. That's according to the local nonprofit organization Project Bread. About a quarter of all families with children in Massachusetts are currently considered food insecure. Advocates say it's likely due to inflation and then the and also the end of pandemic era safety net programs. New England professional sports took a break this Thanksgiving holiday. Yesterday, the Celtics beat the Bucks. They'll face the Magic at Orlando tomorrow. The Bruins host the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow afternoon. The Patriots are back on Sunday at the Giants. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, Supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. The VA wants veterans to know about the PACT Act. That law expands benefits for veterans exposed to toxic chemicals. At the same time, federal officials are trying to crack down on companies that promise to help veterans with claims, then leave them with thousands of dollars in fees. Steve Walsh of member station WHRO in Norfolk reports. In 2019, Erica Fernandez joined the Navy. She eventually became a parachute rigger. The work was physical and demanding. She ended up on the crew of the Navy's newest aircraft carrier, the USS Gerald Ford. But a series of ailments began piling up. I have melanoma in my right eye, going blind in it. I'm also going deaf in my right ear. And I have deteriorating discs in my lower back and many other medical conditions. So when I didn't pass my last physical, they went ahead and discharged me. At 26 years old, she was medically separated from the service. She began applying for disability benefits through the VA. Fernandez has binders full of medical records spread out on her couch in Portsmouth, Virginia. All that documentation helped her prove that some of her disabilities were service-connected. When I first got out, I immediately went ahead and put my claim in. No waiting at all. It was almost instant. I looked at the claim. I was reading it more in more fine print, and I realized I didn't have half of my disabilities on there. She lost her appeal to add additional disabilities to her claim. Denials are not uncommon in the VA system, but they can put a tremendous stress on the limited income of people like Fernandez and her spouse. I gave up. I completely gave up. We gave up to the point where we sat here for roughly, I want to say, a year with a $1,500 a month income. We were losing our house. We were losing our car. That's when she got a call from a company that said they were run by veterans and they would help with her appeal. If you don't get any increase, we don't charge you. But if you do get an increase, we take one-third of your back pay. And I was like, okay, you know what, that's that's fair because I need a lot of help. Several months later, she got another call from the company. The VA had declared her 100% disabled. I dropped the phone. I hit the floor. The back pay was going to save our house. The back pay was going to save our car. Then she got the bill. The VA had granted her $11,000 in back benefits, but the company was charging her $10,000. How are they able to file on my behalf and then turn around and take absolutely everything that was given to me? 
In response to an inquiry by NPR, the Veterans Administration says the Arizona-based VetLink Solutions is not accredited by the VA. Legally, the company cannot charge a fee to help veterans file appeals. The VA has sent two cease-and-desist orders to the company. The company has not responded to our requests for comment. Since Congress passed the PACT Act in 2022, which allows millions of veterans to qualify for benefits, the number of cases involving fraud has risen. It's unbelievable how I feel like they're robbing the veterans, you know, for services that should have been given to them for free. James Smith is the post commander at the Disabled American Veterans Chapter in Portsmouth and a senior vice commander in Virginia. Fernandez came to him after she got the bill. He wishes she had come to him first. You know, come to the right sources, come to the VSOs, the veteran service organizations here that are doing the jobs right. We're voluntary services, so we don't charge you fees. Places like the DAV, American Legion, VFW, and many states and counties will file the paperwork for veterans without charge. The VA and the White House have been standing up efforts to educate veterans about companies that charge high fees. At the moment, Smith says people like Fernandez who sign contracts may be on the hook. In a written statement, the VA says it recommends vets who think they've been defrauded to contact their state's attorney general or federal law enforcement. NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh. Veterinarians are tracking a mysterious and sometimes fatal respiratory illness spreading in dogs. There appear to be hundreds of cases, if not more, around the country. NPR's Will Stone reports scientists are racing to better understand what's going on. It was more than a year ago, in the summertime, when David Needle first started hearing rumblings of a canine respiratory disease in his state. Needle is a pathologist at the New Hampshire Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. The dogs were sneezing. They develop a cough and discharge from their eyes. The illness would often drag on for a long time. In our experience, this is not a high mortality syndrome, but there is a subset of animals, it appears, that will develop acute and severe pneumonia and, and die. Even more puzzling, the dogs would test negative for the bacteria and viruses that are usually responsible for canine respiratory illness, what's typically described by the umbrella term kennel cough. Most wouldn't respond to treatment either, so Needle set out to learn more. I actually drove swabs out to a couple clinics. With those samples in hand, they did genetic sequencing, working with the Hubbard Center for Genome Studies at the University of New Hampshire. We found no known DNA or RNA viruses, no bacterial pathogens, no fungal pathogens. So at that point, we were sort of at a, like, breaking point. And then finally, they found something, a short segment of DNA belonging to what appears to be bacteria that no one has seen before. We think this may be a pathogen. It's something novel. It's in a proportion of the cases. It's funky. Problem is, they can't culture it, at least not yet. And Needle says they still need to sequence more of the genome, but he suspects this could be what's making the dog sick, at least initially, before they develop a secondary infection. Fast forward to this summer, Needle heard reports of a similar respiratory syndrome in Rhode Island in Massachusetts. Sure enough, he got a handful of samples that turned up the same bacteria in the dogs there. The fact that we were able to see it in two other states a year after we first saw it was significant. And here the story moves across the country. In late summer, Oregon health officials noticed a similar-looking respiratory disease. There's been more than 200 cases so far. Some ended up at Dove Lewis, an animal hospital in Portland. A little scary in the beginning because of how sick some of these young, otherwise healthy dogs were getting. 
Hannah Marshall, a veterinarian at Dove Lewis, says initially it was hard to make sense of. This is lasting a lot longer than we would expect. This isn't responding to the normal antibiotics or we're having to do really intensive, aggressive therapy, even surgery. Thankfully, she says, the cases seem to have tapered off a bit in recent months. That's not the case in Colorado, though, where a similar illness popped up over the summer. Amanda Cavanaugh is a critical care veterinarian at Colorado State University. They're still coming at the same pace. We're seeing three to four dogs per day coming in for cough, which is definitely an increase from years past. As with the cases in New England, symptoms like the cough seem to linger for weeks or even months. Kavanaugh says they don't know what's responsible. They just started testing. We're very much in the information gathering stage. It's hard to say how widespread these illnesses are. There are also cases in the Midwest. Given the uncertainty, Kavanaugh is advising people to limit their dog's potential exposure, avoid doggy daycares, boarding facilities, and dog parks. Not only in Colorado. Just anecdotally, you know, the chatter amongst veterinarians are that there are hot spots all over the country where some people are seeing um, an increase in respiratory cases. She says the other step is to make sure your dog is up to date on its vaccines. Back in New Hampshire, David Needle is busy testing samples from Oregon to see if they can find the same bacteria. Until we can put the dots together in the coming weeks to month, there is no certainty at all that what we've seen is even what's going on in the other places. Caution, not fear, is what he's telling the many worried dog owners contacting him. He says if you limit your pet's playtime with other dogs, you'll be less likely to have to deal with this. Will Stone, NPR News. And you're listening. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. If you're the chef in your house, then you already know Thanksgiving is often the most carefully planned, most high-stakes meal of the year. You're telling me. But sometimes cooks have to improvise at the last minute, and the results can be amazing. That's what happened at a small bakery just outside Zion National Park in Utah, where a mysterious dessert has become a tourist attraction unto itself. David Condos with member station KUER tells the sweet story. Inside the Bumbleberry Bakery, a steady stream of tourists walk up to get a taste of local history. Visitors Callum and Amanda Nelson from California picked two pieces of pie a la mode. The ingredients of this gooey purple filling are classified. But after scooping up a bite, Callum takes a guess. It's like blackcurrant and blackberry and something else. <laughs> the mystery ingredient. The mystery ingredient, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this secret recipe started by accident in the mid-1960s when the restaurant was run by Grandma Constance Madsen. Here's how her granddaughter Melanie Madsen tells the story. One day, a big bus of tourists rolled in unexpectedly, and Grandma didn't have enough of any single pie filling to feed the hungry crowd. There was never such thing as being closed. If there was someone who came and hadn't eaten, it didn't matter if the stove had been turned off and the oven had shut down, she would go fix something. So Grandma bumbled together a combination of whatever berries were on hand and served the pies. Melanie says word spread quickly from one tourist bus to the next. By the end of that summer, bumbleberry pie was a thing. It even had its own song. Have you been to Bumbleberry Valley? Melanie and two of her siblings, Richard Madsen and Holly Rowland, remember their grandma would call them over to sing it for customers while they ate. They were young kids back then, between ages four and six, but they could still tell their family's restaurant was a big deal, with long lines out front and visitors from all over the world. 
Won't you come to Bumbleberry Valley? It's been a long time. But the business didn't stay in the Madsen family forever. Stan Smith's family took the reins in 1972, and he takes his work as guardian of the confidential berry blend very seriously. When somebody asks what a bumbleberry is, a bumbleberry is a burple and binkleberry that grows on a giggle bush. There's a fanciful story that goes with it, too. Cartoons of little creatures who harvest the burple and binkleberries from those giggle bushes. Now, some customers get frustrated that he won't reveal the ingredients. But Smith says they're missing the point. It's magic. I mean, you know, especially nowadays in the, in the world where everything's so chaotic and people are so spiteful and hateful. What's a little joy? A lot has changed in the five decades since his family bought this place. Visitorship to neighboring Zion National Park has jumped fivefold, and the bumbleberry business has boomed. Smith says they've gone through up to 13 tons of berries in a single year. But the pie, that's the same as always. Recipe does not change. No matter how big of a celebrity the bumbleberry becomes, for Melanie Madsen and her family, it'll always be a reminder of grandma. Each year around the holidays, they still get together and bake the pie. It's oh, yeah. tradition. Yeah. They've tried tweaking the recipe, but yeah. in the end, she oh, says man. nothing can top yes. grandma's original. <laughs> For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Springdale, Utah. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for spending time with us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Coming up on All Things Considered, a St. Louis police officer is refusing to testify in murder cases he investigated, even when he believes the defendants are guilty. Find out why on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston as Fenway Park. Handel's Messiah, three performances Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, handelandhyden.org. And Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. Clear skies tonight, low around 35. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy again, mid to upper 40s. Saturday, plenty of sunshine, colder, highs in the upper 30s. Right now, we have 47 degrees in Boston. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. The holiday season is basically here. That means visiting relatives, shopping for presents downtown, and for some, figuring out where to park. Parking in Boston can be a headache. The roads are windy, there's rotaries, there's street cleaning, and there's a lot of rules to follow. Here's a tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. Pay attention to resident-only signs. You'll need to have a valid neighborhood parking permit to park in certain spots. Quarters and even credit cards work at parking meters. There's also an app called Park Boston, so you could pay on your phone and extend your time easily. And metered spots are free on Sundays and city holidays. Check out our guide to take the pain out of parking in greater Boston. Go to WBUR.org slash field guide. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. With writers and actors strikes finally in the rearview mirror, Hollywood has a clear road ahead as it revs up for the holidays. Auto races, comedies, musicals. Here's Bob Mondello's holiday movie preview. Start with royalty. I finally got a job. I'm the king of Atlantis. Aquaman 2 gives us Jason Momoa all shiny and scaly and gives him an opponent. I'm gonna kill Aquaman and destroy everything he holds dear. That'd be Black Manta. I'm gonna murder his family and burn his kingdom Wait, what? to ash. Aren't they underwater? Well, never mind. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom will no doubt make sense of this. While in drier realms, Queen Bee reigns in Renaissance, a concert film by Beyonce. Beyonce promises a look behind her elaborate stage sets. When I am performing, I am nothing but free. The goal for this tour was to create a place where everyone is free. And while we're talking royalty, probably ought to mention Ferrari, in which the Formula One racing king is played, appropriately enough, by Adam Driver. If you get into one of my cars, you get into me. Also in it to win, characters in a couple of other sports-related true stories. George Clooney directs Boys in the Boat, a chronicle of how working-class college kids turned into a world-class crew team during the Great Depression. Looks like you still owe a balance on this semester. When they were mostly just looking for a meal. So what, what's that about making some money? Yeah, the rowing team. You're on you get a part-time job included, cheap place to live. Eight-man crew is the most difficult team sport in the world. Months of practice later, they would end up... I don't in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. A more cautionary sports tale, The Iron Claw, concerns a 1980s wrestling family, the Von Erichs, who were pushed hard by their father. Perry, I want you to join your brothers in the ring. Yes, sir. I love that. Maybe too hard. Now, we all know Carrie's my favorite, then Kev, then David, then Mike. But the rankings can always change. Eager to please him, five of his six sons would die before he did. So many tragedies that people talked of a Von Erich family curse. Not the holiday mood you were looking for? Well, rest assured, on other screens, there will be uplift. What's happening? Ooh, that's a chocolate that makes it fly. Well, let's find out, shall we? Who's for a hover job? Timothy Chalamet. Nothing to see here. Just a small group of people defying the laws of gravity. In a prequel to Roald Dahl's children's classic. Ladies and gentlemen of the gallery gourmet, my name is Willy Wonka. This new take on the world's most famous chocolatier comes from the creators of Paddington. Other films for family audiences include Studio Ghibli's The Boy and the Heron, the latest hand-drawn fantasy from the great Japanese animator Miyazaki Hayao. A gray heron once told me that all gray herons are liars. So is that the truth or a lie? A truth! And if anime herons aren't your thing, how about vacationing computer-animated ducks in migration? This isn't about migration. It's about adventure. An adventure that does not go as planned. What is that? Duck a la What's duck a la It's you with larange on top. While we're talking food, I should mention The Taste of Things, a French feast for the senses, starring Juliette Binoche as a woman in love with her kitchen partner, but perhaps even more in love with the food they prepare. Other romances include the literally haunting All of Us Strangers, which brings together two troubled men in a nearly empty high-rise. This is a new feeling. You and me into the world. Together. While they get together, the comedy Anyone But You does its best to separate warring exes at a destination wedding until another ex shows up. Maybe we should just tell everyone we're together. What? It would solve that problem for me, and you clearly want Margaret. Right! She sees her with me. She wants what she can have. 
Let's do it. What could possibly go wrong? Less romantic comedies include a literary satire, American fiction about a black author who can't seem to get traction with publishers. They want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. He does, so as a joke, just for his agent. <laughs> I'd be standing outside in the night. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing. But the agent sends it out. We sold a book. No. We believe Mr. Lee has written a bestseller. It's a joke. And the lies start piling up. Now, is Stag a pseudonym? Yeah. Mr. Lee can't use his real name. Can I ask what you were in for? Was it murder? Yeah, you said that, not me. American fiction is garnering Oscar talk and prompted enough laughs to win the Toronto Film Festival's People's Choice Award. And no less literary is a film that pits Chronicles of Narnia author C.S. Lewis against the father of psychiatry, played by Anthony Hopkins. Dr. Freud. Sit, please. Not there. That's the transformation couch. You be careful. <laughs> it's called Freud's Last Session. Why would you come here to see me if you disagree so passionately with my views? You've insisted all your lives that the very concept of God is ludicrous. Yes. Clash between God and Satan. Ah, but I did not say whose side I was on. The question of sides doesn't come up in awards contenders dealing with the Holocaust. Zone of Interest offers a harrowingly ordinary portrait of a Nazi officer's family life just outside Auschwitz. Steve McQueen's documentary Occupied City looks at World War II Amsterdam. In 1941, they started rounding people up. In 1942, the deportations began. And Wim Wenders' Anselm uses 3D to plunge us into the work of German artist Anselm Kiefer, who spent decades grappling with Germany's past. Without the help of architects or engineers, Kiefer and his assistants have turned this 200-acre site into one of the most jaw-dropping works of art in the world. Other documentaries range from the self-explanatory, radioactive, the women of Three Mile Island, to Piano Forte, which takes us to Warsaw. Nobody likes competitions. For a behind-the-scenes look. And everybody does it. At the 18th International Chopin competition. I mean, how can you compete in music? And then, in what you'd have to call an appropriate last-minute flourish for the year of Barbie, there are quite a few films centering on women. One is a fierce comedy called Poor Things, which is almost indescribable, though if you called it a comic mashup of Frankenstein... She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. And the feminist Cinderella, you wouldn't be wrong. A woman plotting her course to freedom. How delightful. Poor Things is from Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos, creator of The Lobster and The Favorite. And like those films, it overflows with weirdness. Then there are three woman-centered thrillers, Eileen, in which the title character becomes obsessed with a sultry prison psychiatrist, played by Anne Hathaway. People are so ashamed of their desires. Shida, in which an Iranian mother seeks protection from her abusive husband. The judge has issued Hossein temporary access. Uh, I, I don't It means Hossein can see Mona alone, unsupervised. And the end we start from, in which new mom Jodie Comer. Where am I? There I am. Has to face down an environmental catastrophe when her water breaks at about the moment the world's ecosystem breaks. Where am I? Women's stories are also the subjects of two musicals Waitress. I got 14 pies to make that ain't gonna bake themselves. A filmed version of the Broadway stage production that is still touring. And a freshly reimagined The Color Purple. This time I'll be free from you and then turn to creation. I'd die before I let that happen. Good. That's just a gone away present I've been needing. Oh!
The story of Nettie, Seely, and Suge started out as a beloved book, morphed into a movie, a Broadway smash, and now comes back to film as a movie musical just in time to color the holidays purple. Sweet and loving God. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Thanks for spending time with us on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a St. Louis police officer is refusing to testify in a murder case he investigated. Find out why ahead on 90.9 WBUR. We're looking at clear skies for tonight, low around 35. A full Thanksgiving forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts tomorrow. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. He is a menace to society. He is the biggest problem with policing and the biggest problem with society. Why are some police officers in St. Louis refusing to testify in cases they investigated? Today is Thursday, November 23rd, and this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. This hour, an investigation into how some cops are protesting liberal prosecutors by refusing to show up as witnesses in court. Also, the latest on the hostage deal between Israel and Hamas. Dutch elections deliver a surprise. And the great Thanksgiving pie debate, sweet potato or pumpkin? Uh, Number week, I would say that we go through at least 15 to 20 sweet potato pies. During the holiday, I would say 40 to 50. Plus, a different way to prepare a turkey from Taiwan. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Israel and Hamas are expected to begin a four-day ceasefire in Gaza tomorrow. The agreement calls for the release of some of the roughly 240 Israeli hostages seized by Hamas in a deadly attack on Israel last month. Israel has agreed to free scores of Palestinian prisoners. NPR Scott Newman has more from Tel Aviv. Israel says it's received a list of the first batch of hostages to be freed under the agreement. The foreign ministry in Qatar, where the deal was brokered, says it includes 13 Israeli women and minors. Hamas expects three times as many Palestinians to be released from Israeli jails. But Israeli officials have remained tight-lipped about the details of the exchange. 
The deal reportedly calls for the release of 50 Israeli hostages and 150 Palestinians in small batches over the four days of the pause in fighting. But it could be extended up to 10 days. Israel says it intends to resume its military campaign in Gaza as soon as the deal expires. Scott Newman, NPR News, Tel Aviv. A deadly shooting Monday at a Walmart in Ohio has left employees rattled, but officials say the store will reopen tomorrow. Meanwhile, authorities say they're investigating whether the attack was racially motivated. From member station WYSO, Catherine Mobley has more. The FBI and the Beaver Creek Police are sorting through the journal writings connected to the gunman identified as Benjamin Charles Jones. Agents say the attack may have been at least partially inspired by racially motivated violent extremist ideology. According to the FBI, these individuals are driven by a racial or ethnic bias against another group. Monday night, authorities say Jones shot four people inside the retail superstore. They include two African-American females and a white male and female. All are recovering. Jones died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Additionally, investigators say the 20-year-old bought his weapon on November 18th from a Dayton area store. Jones used a high-point 45 caliber carbine rifle with one nine-round magazine. For NPR News, I'm Catherine Mobley. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has been accused of sexually assaulting a woman in 1993. He denies sexually assaulting anyone. I don't recall ever uh, meeting a person who made uh, the uh, this uh, allegation. Uh, but, you know, I have a city to run and I'm focused and I have to make sure that we continue to, to, to do so. But uh, absolutely, uh, this has never happened. The three-page summons filed yesterday comes as Adams has been dogged by an FBI investigation into his 2021 campaign that prompted agents to seize his phones and raid the home of his chief campaign fundraiser. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. Researchers say the largest animal on Earth, the blue whale, is back in the waters off the Seychelles after being driven to near extinction in the 1960s by Russian whaling crews. Footage of the whales features in Returns of the Giants 3D, the IMAX film. Ishma Fondikwa has more. The researchers who published their findings in the Journal of Endangered Species Research conducted two expeditions to determine blue whale distribution, obtain photo identification data, and collect the first acoustic data using a hydrophone. Besides sightings, acoustic monitoring of Seychelles demonstrated that blue whales occur there regularly, primarily from December to April. Despite the good news, conservationists say the blue whale populations are still a tiny fraction of their pre-whaling number. They remain on the International Union for Conservation of Nature and the U.S. Endangered Species Act lists of endangered species. For NPR News, I am Ishma Fundikwa in Harare. This Thanksgiving was a great one for a dog named Stash. He's the terrier who today won the 22nd annual National Dog Show. He dethroned Winston, the French bulldog who won last year. Pumpkin the Dalmatian came in second. The pooch now has won 49 Best in Show prizes. His handler, Marjorie Good, says Stash will celebrate with a tasty dinner with the six canine friends he lives with. 
Wall Street it was closed today in honor of Thanksgiving. I'm Janine Herbst, and you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. New England prof- professional sports took a break this Thanksgiving holiday. Yesterday, the Celtics beat the Bucks. They'll face the Magic at Orlando tomorrow. The Bruins host the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow afternoon, and the Patriots are back on Sunday at the Giants. Clear skies tonight, low around 35, and you'll need that windbreaker again for tomorrow chilly mid to upper 40s for tomorrow. Saturday, plenty of sunshine, colder highs in the upper 30s. Sunday, some sun, increasing clouds by the afternoon. Rain moves in Sunday night into Monday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. We're going to start this hour with news of murder trials that have been taking place without an important witness. This is happening in St. Louis, and it tells us something about the nationwide debate over how to deal with crime and the resistance to progressive prosecutors. NPR investigative correspondent Sasha Pfeiffer is here to bring us the story. Hey, Sasha. Hi, Ari. You've been working on the story with ProPublica. What have you found? So right off the bat, Ari, I want to play you two pieces of tape. These are a pair of voicemails, pleading voicemails, and this is the first one. Hey, Detective Murphy, I wanted to reach out to you one more time. I do think we need you on this case. There is no problem with calling you as a witness, so uh, please give me a call. What's happening here, Sasha? What are we hearing? That is a prosecutor begging a police officer to testify at a homicide trial, but the officer did not respond, so the prosecutor called again. Hey, Detective Murphy, I understand you have issues, but this is a murder case, and we kind of need you. If it makes any difference, this guy's a really bad guy, so can you put your differences aside and focus on getting this guy? That would be helpful. Thank you. And did Detective Murphy respond to that second voicemail? No, he did not. Uh, This is a detective named Roger Murphy. He never did testify. That's even though he was the lead detective and even though he believes the man on trial did beat a person to death and even though he believes his absence hurt the case. So this detective investigated a murder. He thinks the defendant was guilty and he thinks if he had testified that could have helped secure a conviction. Why wouldn't he take the stand? So I want to note, by the way, that that jury in that case came back with a not guilty verdict. Mm. I also want to note that Detective Murphy is not the only St. Louis police officer who has refused to cooperate, but he is one of the most extreme. So far, he has refused to testify in at least nine murder cases in which he was the lead detective and in another one coming up soon. For what reason? So some context. As we've said, this is taking place in St. Louis. That city, of course, became an epicenter of the Black Lives Matter movement and of calls for police accountability after the 2014 shooting of Michael Brown. For anyone who doesn't remember, Michael Brown was killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson. His death in the protests that followed created a huge push for criminal justice reform. Yes, and as part of that push for reform, St. Louis elected a new top prosecutor in 2016, and she created what's called an exclusion list of problematic cops. What is an exclusion list? It's a list where police officers who are believed to have credibility problems get put on it, and it, and it excludes them from getting search warrants or bringing cases forward. And Detective Murphy feels so wronged about being put on that list that he's basically willing to sabotage his own cases. So I went to St. Louis to talk with him. Hmm. Well, take us there. What did you find? Well, I met Murphy at his home on the city's south side. He lives in a small house with his wife and his pickup truck and two pit bulls. 
That's Lucy, the brown one. And that's Ethel. I got her from a crime scene, uh, murder-suicide. We got her back to health, and now she's... She's 50 pounds of craziness. <laughs> it's not that Murphy doesn't have time to testify. He's now retired, so he has nothing but time. I get up, I go and hit the coffee pot, put the dogs out. I go out in the garage, I smoke a cigarette. I go fishing, eat dinner, uh, get with our neighbors. Murphy appears to have a clean record, but he landed on a list of problematic St. Louis cops because of some Facebook posts. In one, he called a black man who'd been killed by a white police officer a violent thug. He also referred to the top prosecutor in St. Louis at the time, a black woman named Kim Gardner, as Kimmy G. A judge later said Murphy's Facebook posts were unprofessional but not racist. And Murphy says he was just exercising his right to free expression. There's nothing biased. It shows that I'm a conservative and it shows I'm, you know, pro-police. I mean, I could see if I committed a crime, but this was because I was speaking out against the political system here in the city of St. Louis. Murphy strongly opposes Kim Gardner's policies. She's a progressive Democrat. She wants to reduce mass incarceration, eliminate cash bail, promote rehabilitation over punishment, and not prosecute some nonviolent crimes like shoplifting. Murphy calls that a soft-on-crime approach that's making cities less safe. And although Gardner's office put him on its exclusion list, it still asked him to testify at some trials. Murphy says it's hypocrisy to question his integrity, yet want him to testify. And he says even if he did testify, defense attorneys might grill him about why he's on the list. I'm going to get on the stand and they're going to crucify me. It would have been all about me and not about the case. Being on Gardner's list meant Murphy wasn't allowed to do much work on cases. So he ended up doing a whole lot of nothing. I'd come in at six o'clock in the evening and I'd watch Amazon Prime or I'd watch Netflix or I'd watch Hulu or whatever. You're paying me at that time $61,000 a year plus benefits to sit there and watch TV. So Murphy retired about two years ago out of boredom and frustration, but some of his cases are still ongoing. The police department didn't order Murphy to testify and didn't discipline him for not testifying. There's now a new top prosecutor in St. Louis who says he doesn't have an exclusion list, and his office has also asked Murphy to testify. But Murphy still won't do it, and he said his lawyer advised him not to testify either. Was it the right thing to do? In my mind, yes. In other people's minds, probably in your mind, it wasn't the right thing to do. Prosecutors were able to get some convictions without Murphy on the stand. But in other cases, they offered plea deals or dropped charges entirely. Had Murphy testified, the outcomes may have been different. But that one defiant guy in Tiananmen Square standing in front of a Chinese tank, and I'm not saying I'm that guy, you know, but somebody has to stand up and go, this system needs an overhaul. He is a menace to society. Adolphus Pruitt is president of the St. Louis NAACP. He has a sworn duty to protect and serve. And if he doesn't do such, because he was on his list of some other bull crap, he is the biggest problem with policing and the biggest problem with society. Murphy says he's fed up with what he calls hatred towards police and disgusted by liberal prosecutors. He also says he's taking a principled stance and speaking for other disillusioned police officers who are afraid to speak up. But Pruitt buys none of that. It is retribution. If they had to drop cases or they had to plead for weaker sentences, it worked. 
He extracted the retribution he wanted to extract on the office. And that's all that was. That office is the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. It was led by Kim Gardner for nearly seven years. She was elected and re-elected by a wide margin both times. Her progressive message resonated after the trauma St. Louis went through following Michael Brown's death. Here's Gardner after winning her primary three years ago. The people spoke and they said enough is enough. People saw the murder of Mr. George Floyd. People see the murders of many others at the hands of law enforcement that should be But Gardner clashed with police. They say she failed to prosecute legitimate cases and her office struggled with massive dysfunction. About a third of her attorneys quit. The ones left behind had crushing caseloads. Some didn't show up in court for trials. Eventually, Missouri's attorney general sued to try to remove her from office, and a judge said this. The circuit attorney's office appears to be a rudderless ship of chaos. Back in 2020, Gardner had filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city and police union, alleging a racist conspiracy to push her out of office. She did not respond to multiple requests for comment, but here she is at a Baptist church in St. Louis in May. You can't run an office that you have people inside and out purposely tearing this office down. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not leaving. I'm not resigning. I'm not doing nothing. You're going to have to remove me. About two weeks later, Gardner did resign, but the legacy of her exclusion list still lingers. I don't think exclusion lists are a good idea to begin with. That's Boston College law professor Michael Cassidy. He says these lists alienate police officers, so prosecutors shouldn't be surprised when cops on them refuse to cooperate. Saying that I'm going to put you on an exclusion list is basically the death penalty to your career. But Cassidy also says Murphy has an obligation to testify. Murphy could be subpoenaed, but he says if that happens, he'd refuse to answer questions on the stand. And Cassidy says that means murders may go unsolved. So he doesn't get a lot of sympathy for me, but neither does the extreme position of creating exclusion lists without giving the people on that list any opportunity to talk to you before the list is created. So neither party here gets a lot of sympathy from me. Murphy is still railing against Kim Gardner months after she resigned from office. And he does not intend to testify in another St. Louis murder trial scheduled to start soon. Did it hurt cases? It definitely hurt cases. And I apologize to the family and all the other families out there that didn't get to seek justice. But I don't believe in the progressive system at all. At all. The public has seen me as the enemy and has seen our profession as the enemy. But we didn't break the system. We kept arresting people and she kept letting them out refusing cases, refusing good cases. Murphy did agree to testify in one case. That's because Gardner's office wasn't involved and one of the victims was related to a police officer. And, and yeah, the bias in that point is it's a policeman's family and we're all, you know, supportive of each other. Murphy says it does bother him that one homicide case he refused to testify in resulted in an acquittal. Murphy thinks if he had testified, the man accused would be behind bars. I still feel bad that he's walking the streets because he's going to do it to somebody else. Murderers don't just murder one time. Progressive prosecutors say that attitude shows how much external and internal opposition they're up against. Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News.
We'll hear more about that on Morning Edition tomorrow. And go to npr.org for a link to the digital version of this story by ProPublica, which NPR collaborated with for this project. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. It's 618. Coming up in about 10 minutes on Marketplace, shoppers are spreading out their holiday purchases this year. One reason why? This year, consumers have the sense that they'll be more available for more of the time, and they want to be really choiceful and thoughtful about what they're going to get and when they're going to get it. A look at holiday spending trends and how this year compares to last. That's next on Marketplace, beginning at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting with a Black Friday event now through the 27th for all hand-woven rugs. Only online at LandryandArkari.com. There was no trading on Wall Street today. The stock market was closed for the Thanksgiving holiday. Cambridge Biotech Evolo is closing. The company filed paperwork with the federal government announcing its closure this week. Boston Business Journal reports that company's eczema medicine failed in clinical trials earlier this year. And if you're out there on the road, gas prices in Massachusetts keep ticking down. The statewide average is $3.41 a gallon. According to AAA, that's down $0.04 from last week and $0.38 cheaper than last year. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington. In a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, the Tony Award-winning musical about surprise connections, shared humanity, and love of music. Coming to the Boston stage for the first time ever from now through December 10th at the Huntington Theater. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Just go to WBUR.org newsletters. Clear skies for tonight. Temperatures drop to about 35 degrees. Tomorrow, chilly and breezy again, mid to upper 40s. Saturday, plenty of sunshine, colder, highs in the upper 30s. Sunday, some sun, increasing clouds later in the day. Rain could move in Sunday night into Monday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. And Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Tomorrow could bring two important developments that we haven't seen since war erupted between Israel and Hamas almost seven weeks ago. First, a temporary ceasefire is supposed to take hold in the morning. And second, Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners are supposed to be exchanged later in the day. NPR's Greg Myrie is reporting this story from Tel Aviv. Hey, Greg. Hi, Ari. How exactly is this expected to play out on Friday? 
So this four-day ceasefire is set to begin Friday at 7 a.m. local time. Uh, this was announced today by Qatar, the Gulf nation that brokered the deal. And then at 4 p.m., about nine hours later, Hamas is supposed to hand over 13 Israeli women and children seized when the militants attacked Israel back on October 7th. Now, the names haven't been announced yet, but the militant group is holding, we know, a baby that's less than a year old. It's also holding a three-year-old Israeli-American whose parents were both killed by Hamas. In turn, Israel is to free about 40 Palestinian women and teenagers from Israeli prisons. Similar exchanges are then supposed to follow for three additional days or through Monday. And, and if this works out as intended, could the ceasefire be extended beyond Monday? Uh, yes, Ari, it can. Um, if, if this first four days of the ceasefire goes smoothly, it can keep getting extended by an additional day at a time for up to 10 days. Hamas would continue to re release about a dozen or so women and children each day, and Israel would free another 40 women and teenagers uh, daily from those currently in prison. But this ceasefire will only last a maximum of 10 days. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel's, Israel's goal is still to destroy Hamas. Israel is not interested in a long-term ceasefire. Palestinian civilians in Gaza are facing terrible conditions. Can you tell us about the humanitarian aid component of this agreement? So they should get some relief. Israel has been bombing Gaza virtually nonstop since the Hamas attack. We're talking thousands and thousands of airstrikes, including more just this evening. Uh, the bombing is still going on. So this would be the first respite for the more than 2 million Palestinian civilians in Gaza. Also, the deal calls for additional aid to come into the territory, food, water, medicine, fuel, and this is supposed to go up to at least 200 trucks a day. That's far more than we've been seeing in the past seven weeks. So this will certainly be welcome, but a large part, portion of Gaza's population has been displaced, going from the northern part of the territory to the south because Israel told them to leave. Conditions are extremely rough in the south, and while the most urgent needs may be addressed here, this is by no means a permanent solution. These negotiations have been so fraught. How great is the risk that the ceasefire doesn't last for 10 days or, or even for the four? Yeah, that's, that's certainly possible. The conditions are very tense, very volatile. Any number of things could go wrong at any moment. The Israeli military reported ongoing fighting today in a half dozen places in northern Gaza, where Israel now controls much of that territory. Um, Israeli troops and Hamas militants will remain in place during the ceasefire, so they'll still be in close proximity. A single incident could easily spiral out of control. And in the coming days, even if they go well, won't, won't resolve the hostage crisis. Hamas and other Palestinian militants will still be holding more than half of the 240 hostages they currently have. Uh, so Hamas knows this still gives it some leverage, and it's likely to make even greater demands for freeing the men and the soldiers they'll still be holding. That is NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Sure thing, Ari. Today, Turkey will be at the center of many Thanksgiving Day tables here in the U.S. In Taiwan, the bird has also become a popular dish, though it's cooked a little differently. NPR's Emily Fang gave it a try. Yang Pianghua has been working around turkeys for his entire life. His father first began raising them in the 1970s in Taiwan's Jiayi County. 
The males have these bright blue heads and fleshy snoods. Yes, they're called snoods that droop from their beaks. Wow. And Mr. Yang explains the longest snoods denote the alpha males. Turkeys are native to North America, but they've been on Taiwan since the 17th century, brought over by the Dutch, who briefly colonized the island. But turkeys didn't take off in Taiwan until the 20th century, as living standards improved. Turkey was even once a source of tension with the U.S. Yan Gaoting, the chair of Taiwan's ROC Turkey Raising Association, an industry group for breeders, explains. Because of a U.S.-Taiwan trade agreement in the 1970s, Taiwan once opened its market to American turkey meat, which had a big impact on local farmers. Local farmers protested, U.S. turkey meat imports stopped. But American white-feathered turkeys are still the dominant breed on the island. How they're raised and prepped is thoroughly Taiwanese, though per Mr. Yang. He professionally roasts turkeys for local clients. I roast the turkeys like Chinese roast duck. In the U.S., you bake a turkey in an oven on a tray. I hang my turkeys inside the oven so they heat evenly. And he says he will only use Taiwan-raised turkeys, which he says have firmer flesh and smell better. Mr. Yang's turkey is an exception, though. Most turkey in Taiwan is not roasted whole. It's most commonly consumed chopped up into succulent morsels and scattered across chewy, short-grained rice. The dish is called jiayi turkey rice. It's inspired by a similar popular dish with pork. I met turkey rice maestro Liu Zhongyuan to learn more. At his restaurant Liu Li Zhang, a shop his father began more than 50 years ago. The dish has become a classic in Taiwan. And Mr. Liu says turkey is much healthier for you than pork. He says he goes to the hospital every month and comes back with a clean bill of health each time. And he says Americans have been cooking turkey wrong this entire time. Turkey should not be baked, he emphasizes. It must be slowly boiled or steamed to lock in the juices. Roasting a bird can make its meat really dry, he says. His turkey is chewy and moist. Mr. Liu swears by using only the flesh of male turkeys. He claims it's got a better texture and is less fatty. It's then drizzled with soy sauce and rendered turkey fat. And at Mr. Liu's restaurant, it's also topped with crispy fried shallots and pickles. The combination totally works, and I wasn't the only one who thought so. Those are my parents. They happened to be visiting Taiwan for the first time ever, and they loved it. So much so that Jiayi turkey rice might be what we're having for our Thanksgiving dinner, too. Emily Fang, NPR News, Jiayi, Taiwan. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this Thanksgiving on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. 
Wall Street is closed for the holiday. Ahead on WBUR, we take a look at travel numbers. That's next at 6.30 on Marketplace. The news from Israel and Gaza continues to change quickly. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand this moment. Keep listening. Mostly clear skies for tonight. We drop back down to a low of about 35. Tomorrow, expect another windy day, mid to upper 40s. Saturday, sunshine, colder, highs in the upper 30s. Sunday, we start off sunny, then increasing clouds. Rain can move in Sunday night into Monday. The sun rises tomorrow morning at 645. We have 46 degrees in Boston. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR.